Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and your host for this weekly review of all the latest news and developments affecting the investment trust sector. My thanks to JP Morgan Asset Management for agreeing to sponsor the podcast, which as a result will now remain free for the foreseeable future. Moneymakers is an independent research and publishing venture with a mission to explain and inform. But I must remind you that for regulatory reasons, nothing you hear from any speaker today should be regarded as constituting individual investment advice. It was the week of the autumn statement in which the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, unveiled what he said were more than 100 measures to increase growth and trumpeted a 2% cut in national insurance employee contributions to take effect from January, a move that would have had more impact if it were not for the fact that the thresholds for income tax remain frozen for another year, bringing more people into income tax by stealth as inflation continues at an above target level. There were, however, some significant changes to help business, including making the full expensing of capital investment a permanent change. A sceptic may wonder if that commitment will stand the test of time. And some tinkering with the rules on ISAs, individual savings accounts, notably making it possible to invest money into more than one type of ISA in any one financial year. And a measure to enable individuals to have a single lifetime pension pot, which they can carry around with them from one job to the next. Some £30 billion is said to be tied up in stranded pensions that the beneficiaries have either forgotten about or cannot locate. As so often with budgets and autumn statements, the market impact was muted. The gilts market did not like it much, however, as the post-statement debt plans announced by the Debt Management Office showed that the market will need to absorb more issuance than had been expected. There'll be a couple of auctions coming up shortly, which will uh, give us a good indication about the market's capacity or willingness to take on more UK government debt at current yields. In the event this week, yields rose across the curve with some longer dated issues seeing their prices drop by 5% or so, reversing the more positive trend of the last month. The UK equity markets were broadly unchanged, however, the FTSE all shared down around a quarter of 1%. Across the water, the S&P 500 was up just north of 1% in a shorter trading week. The Argentine stock market, which is already up threefold since the start of the year, I'm sorry if you missed that one, uh, responded positively to the election of the radical libertarian Javier Milay as president, even though his plan to dollarize the currency has already had to be watered down somewhat, confronting rhetoric on the campaign trail with the reality of what is a very challenging economic situation in that country. In a week which saw a pause in the seven-week old war between Israel and Hamas in Gaza, gold was up a fraction, as was copper, while the oil price was flat. The Investment Trust Index, meanwhile, which tracks the performance of around 190 constituents of the FTSE All-Share Index, was up around 0.2%, despite the fact that losers narrowly outnumbered gainers. The Battery Storage Trusts, featured here a couple of weeks ago, and up 25% over the past month, were among the notable gainers, along with Seraphim Space and Literacy Capital, the private equity trust. Commercial Property Trusts, interestingly, featured on both lists, both gainers and losers, but there was no particular theme to the week, although the higher guilt yields did weigh a little on alternative asset trusts generally. In this week's podcast, I discuss the outlook for the sector and property trusts in particular with Emma Bird, Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. I spoke to her on Thursday this week where she was in Edinburgh for the annual AIC-backed Scottish conference. So we're hearing if there's anything interesting coming out of that from her. And we also hear from the chairman of two trusts which last week proposed to merge. 
That is uh, JP Morgan UK Smaller Companies, ticker JMI, JP Morgan Midcap, ticker JMF. The two men, both experienced professional investors, will be explaining the rationale behind the deal from the perspective of their two independent boards. With the action of boards generally much more under the spotlight in current market conditions than usual, I hope to attract more boardroom members to come on the podcast and explain their thinking in the weeks ahead. For subscribers to the Moneymakers Circle, our premium bonus content for podcast listeners, this week we have a profile of Fidelity Asian Values, ticker FAS, to be followed next week by an in-depth look at International Biotechnology Trust, ticker IBT, which recently saw its management contract return to Schroeder's after a gap of a few years. Alongside that, you'll find our regular weekly summary of the main price, NAV and discount movers over the past week and year to date, plus all the latest announcements from the investment trust sector. There's now coming up to three years of archive material on the website, and that will cost you £2 a week to subscribe to if you are so minded. There is, of course, other content as well, including periodic commentary from myself and others. Turning to the news for the investment trust sector, first item I picked out this week was an announcement by BBGI Global Infrastructure, ticker BBGI, which announced that its co-CEO, Frank Schramm, is to retire. He's going to retain his position until the end of January next year and stay on as an advisor to the business until December 2024. His co-CEO, Duncan Ball, will continue in his role as now the sole CEO and member of the management board. Bear in mind that this trust is one of the only infrastructure trusts, I believe, that is self-managed and therefore has a traditional corporate management structure rather than the arm's length management contract basis on which most investment trusts are managed. It's fair to say that Frank Schramm is a very experienced investor and performance since this trust came to the market in 2011 has been very much in line with its target, delivering an annualised return of 8% over the past 10 years. And that's despite the fact that the discount has moved out to around 10%, which is quite wide by its historical average as part of the general derating of alternative asset trusts. We also learned that the merger between two property trusts, Picton Property Income and UK Commercial Property, has been called off. They were forced to announce that proposed deal earlier because of press speculation, and it turns out that the deal is not going to go ahead. It has been terminated because the largest shareholder in UK Commercial Property, which is Phoenix Life, the insurance company, which holds 43% of the shares, uh, says it does not support the merger on the proposed terms. That doesn't quite kill off the possibility of a deal. And under the takeover code, uh, Picton has until the 6th of December to announce either a firm intention to make an offer or that it does not intend to do so. Obviously, the attitude of Phoenix life will be critical to whether or not there is a revised offer here or whether the deal is just going to lapse. Also, this week, following the discussion last week about cost disclosure, we did learn from the autumn statement and subsequent announcements that the UK government is on the case to the extent of coming out and saying it is going to replace the retained EU regulatory framework with a new framework that is now going to be tailored specifically to the UK. 
This plan came out in the form of a statutory instrument, which also mentioned the fact that the government has noted some stakeholders' concerns with current cost disclosure retirements, and in particular their potential impact on the investment company sector. So what this means in effect is that the lobbying that has been made by uh, a number of people, including Baroness Altman and uh, John Barron, the MP, has had an impact, and it is on the agenda now that the cost disclosure issue needs to be reformed. The statutory instrument also said that the Financial Conduct Authority, which also has to make some changes if the cost disclosure regime is going to be changed, will be looking at the potential for an interim solution before this new regulatory regime comes in. So anyway, there's certainly some hope that this issue of cost disclosure, which is said by many to penalise those who are looking to invest in investment companies compared to other types of investment fund, will now get some amelioration at least, though we don't know when or how long it will take for all these various changes to come into effect. Uh, we also heard again more news this week from Hypnosis Songs Fund, ticker Song, which has been unfortunately in the news far too often in the last few weeks. Here we learned that the board has said it intends to appoint independent advisors to conduct due diligence on the company's asset. And that will then enable the board, which now has a new chairman and new members, to determine the best way forward. Following the failure of the continuation vote a little while ago, the board has to come up with a new set of proposals for how the company will be managed in future, or indeed whether it will continue at all in the next six months. And the board has also asked Hypnosis Song Management Limited, the current investment advisor, to propose some alternative terms for its future investment advisory arrangements. Obviously, those uh, arrangements being one of the key issues that has bedeviled this particular trust and caused a number of shareholders to say that the relationship between the two has been too heavily weighted in favour of the management company. And at the same time, this is a trust for which bad news never seems to be far away, at least in recent weeks. It also confirmed that Hypnosis Music Limited, a company which has been in liquidation since 2018, has served legal proceedings against the CEO of Hypnosis Song Management Limited, the management advisor, against its CEO, uh, Merck Mercuriadis, against the firm itself, and also against the investment trust. This action to be heard in the High Court here in England. And the allegation here is that the setting up the investment trust, in effect, penalised uh, that earlier company, Hypnosis Music Limited, of which Merck Mercuriadis was a director by diverting business opportunities away from it. Uh, and the company said that it would vigorously defend these claims, but says it's not insured for the costs of dealing with the claim. The shares in Song were down 5% this week. Elsewhere in the news this week, we heard that Gresham House Energy Storage, ticker grid, has uh, energised a new battery plant that it has been constructing, and that will bring its total operational performance up to 640 megawatts. Although two more projects that it's involved in have seen their energisation dates, in other words, the point when they can actually be plugged into the grid, move back until the first quarter of next year. And Biofirma Credit, the debt trust, which lends money to pharmaceutical companies, has announced that it has written down the value of its holding in Lumura DX, a troubled company in which it has invested, where there's been a lot of issues and the debt has not been serviced fully, said that it's marked down the value of that company by around 30%, which will have an impact on the NAV of Biopharma Credit itself, because Lumura DX has been the largest holding that this particular trust has. Turning to results, 
No annual results out this week, but a couple of notable interims. I'm going to mention just a couple. So Caledonian, ticker CLDN, put out its interim results for the period to the end of 30th September. The NAV had already been announced here, but the total return for the period was 3.7% compared to a return of 4.6% for the NMSCI World Index and 1.2% for the FTSE All Share. Uh, those being the two indices against which Caledonian measures its performance. The trust discount has widened significantly in recent times, but it has realised its largest asset, which accounted for 8% of NAV as at the 30th September, at a 20% uplift to its 31st of March carrying value, suggesting that there is indeed more value in the trust than its current share price is indicating. This is a trust where the Kayser family owns uh, nearly half the shares and that limits the amount of free float there is in the company. And that may be another factor that has prompted this trust to move to a discount along with the general deed rating that we've seen for trusts which have a significant holding of private equity as well as listed companies, which is what the Caledonian strategy involves. Uh, we also had interim results from Edinburgh Investment Trust, the UK Equity Income Trust, ticker EDIN which has put together some excellent performance numbers since the management was changed a few years ago. In this period, it produced an NAV total return of 4.5%, which was uh, more than 3% ahead of the FTSE All Share Index. And the outperformance attributed mainly here to good stock selection. The trust has also been buying back shares, equivalent to 3.1% of its opening share capital in this six-month period. The issue for this trust, I think, is going to be the fact that the manager, James Dupper, is uh, retiring next year, and therefore his successor, a gentleman called Imran Sattar, will be in the hot seat, hoping to continue this uh, excellent performance record since the change of management. And I'd also pick out amongst interims, there's an interim statement from Hickel, the Infrastructure Trust, ticker HICL, which interim showed a drop in NAV from 164.9p to 159.4p, so that's a drop around just over 3% over the six months to 30th of September. Now, if you want an example of how difficult sometimes these alternative asset trusts are to analyse, the statement said that the total shareholder return on an annualised basis was running at a rate of minus 1.7%, in part because of that derating that we've talked about so often on the podcast. Uh, but the underlying annualised return from the portfolio was a positive 8.2%. So that's quite a big difference there. Uh, the latter figure excludes changes in the macroeconomic assumptions, uh, meaning mainly here excluding, therefore, the higher discount rate that the trust has adopted over this period. So you have to look quite carefully beneath the bonnet for these infrastructure trusts to try and find out exactly what's happening. The management of Hickel, though, has taken a very positive approach in its latest statement, highlighting what it says is a significant dislocation between private and public market infrastructure valuations. And the board also points out that the existing portfolio return that is implied by the share price, given its uh, big discount, is uh, for a potential portfolio return of nearly 9%, which is something like 6% in real terms. And that compares to a real return of 1.5% uh, that you would get from investing in a UK 30-year index-linked government bond yield. In the short term, though, Higgel says the board says that its priority remains disciplined capital allot management, in particular reduction in short-term floating debt. 
Uh, we also had updates from a number of other trusts, which I won't go through in detail. You can find the details on the website, but they include Next Energy Solar, ticker NESF, LXI REIT, ticker LXI, which is confirmed that it's selling uh, 66 travel lodge hotels for 210 million in line with its uh, book value at the end of September. Pantheon International, there was an update about its buyback capacity following the recent tender offer. We also heard from 24 Monthly Income, the debt fund and a second debt fund, Sequoia Economic Infrastructure. That put out actually some interim results showing an NAV total return of 3.3% and CT Private Equity, which has put out its Q3 net asset value, also up just over 3%. So it was a pleasure to catch up on Thursday with Emma Bird, who's Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. And she was in Edinburgh, where she was speaking and uh, also co-hosting an event in Scotland for investment trusts who are based there for a professional audience. So my first question to you, Emma, is going to be, have we reached some sort of turning point in the investment trust cycle? It's been pretty gloomy news for the last 20 months, derating all round. But there have been signs of life in the last few weeks. What did you have to say about that? Yes, I think it's maybe potentially too early to tell whether we are fully at a long-term turning point. But yeah, since the beginning of November, really, we've seen a bounce, um, particularly in the alternative names. Something that we've been noticing over recent years, something that I showed a chart of in my presentation this morning was just how correlated investment trust discounts and share prices have been to the yield curve. So at the beginning of November, end of October, we had some positive inflation prints, inflation not being as high as people were expecting. And subsequently, the UK gilt yields have fallen. In response to that, discounts have narrowed on some of the alternative assets, in particular property and infrastructure and renewables. So I think there seems to be a bit of a turning point as people start to think we're reaching peak rates. Investor confidence does seem to be returning to an extent. Hopefully it isn't just a dead cat bounce and and we can see this recovery sustaining. I think it might be slightly too early to tell whether that is the case or not at the moment though. But in terms of absolute terms, if we look at the derating we've seen, Across the whole universe, I think it's fair to say we did get back down to something close to the lowest point we've had in previous bear markets, obviously more dramatically for alternative assets and less so for equity investment trusts. So basically, I mean, as a head of investment trust research, all you need to do is look at what's happening to gilt yields on the day and that will uh, solve all your problems for you, won't it? <laughs> um, it seems to have been that way in uh, recent months or years even. Yeah, on the short term basis, things do seem to be very correlated to gilt yields. Obviously, over the medium and long term, there's a lot more to investment trust analysis. <laughs> but it's a good example, perhaps, of how we've had a market in which there's been so one dominant theme, which has kind of trumped everything else and everybody's kind of fallen in behind. But now you would think, if it's true that we've plateaued out and we've reached seen peak interest rates, and if it's true that we're going to see a better period for investment trust ratings, you would expect that to be, again, uniform, or would you expect there to be differentiation between trusts that recover for different reasons? In other words, suppose guilt years do go on down, would it just be the same story of derating going on? Or, or is it now a time where you can actually do well by picking individual investor trusts that will do better or worse than the prevailing trend? Yes, I think as general investor sentiment does return, potentially related to reaching peak rates and guilt yields falling, 
as investors do return to the market, I think they will be looking at specifically where they want to invest. Some investors have been hit pretty badly by some stock-specific issues, some well-publicised ones, particularly in the investment trust sector. So I think that any investors that have either been involved in that or witnessed that will be well aware of the problems that can come just by investing in a general theme or, or sector that might have seemed attractive. So I think discerning investors can really make a profit from identifying long-term, well-managed portfolios that will recover in terms of underlying valuation and that should follow through in the share price re-rating as well. So I guess this is also related to the question of whether boards are doing enough given the derating has happened. I mean, on the one hand, you hear some boards saying, well, it wouldn't have made any difference if we did share buybacks because this derating has been going on for the reasons you just said. And others who have been prodded into action and say we really must do something because it's got so extreme. Where would you sit in that particular dialogue or debate? I think it's interesting. It's actually something that um, definitely came out at the conference that I was at this morning. There does seem to be a real debate about the effectiveness of buybacks. In my opinion, I think that buybacks don't necessarily work in terms of significantly narrowing a discount on its own. There needs to be more than that. There needs to be investor interest in the fund and the asset class following strong performance and portfolio level normally. But what buybacks can do is they can help limit discount volatility to an extent by providing some liquidity there. What's really useful is that they can demonstrate the board and the manager's confidence in underlying valuations. And if a trust is trading at a big discount, investing in its own shares should be a really good investment opportunity for the trust and lead to NAV accretion for um, remaining shareholders. It's obviously more difficult for funds holding illiquid assets. There needs to be a balance between keeping enough cash, not increasing gearing by too much by um, selling assets to buy back shares or um, introduce gearing to buy back shares. So I think there is a real debate there. Something that actually also came out this morning was even just long only equity funds have a caution around too much of a strict share buyback policy as that can limit the advantages that the closed-ended fund structure can have. And one of the clear advantages is that managers don't have to deal with inflows and outflows, selling down assets to fund redemptions. But if they have to do that to fund share buybacks, it makes it more of a kind of semi-closed-ended fund rather than the closed-ended fund structure that, that has that kind of benefit. So it's an, it's an interesting debate. Yeah, it surely is. Before we uh, move on to talk about more specific things, what about the uh, autumn statement yesterday? We heard from the Chancellor somewhere down uh, below the big headlines that the government is proposing to do something, or at least is, is going to involve the FCA in doing something as well to resolve this issue of cost disclosure. What did you make of what came out on Wednesday? I think it's really positive in a way that the issue clearly has got to the top of the table, I guess. The fact that the SEA is considering interim solutions to mitigate the impact of current cost disclosure requirements as the government looks to implement long-term solutions. So they clearly have acknowledged the concerns that have been raised and the need for not only a long-term solution, but kind of an interim solution to try and solve the issue more immediately. However, there was still a lack of detail. So actually what the outcome will be and perhaps more importantly, the timeline of it is still very uncertain. So it's positive that something did come out, but we have to wait to see what exactly that looks like. Also this morning, I mean, of any of the specific presentations that you listened to, as opposed to the remarks you were making yourself, was there anything that stood out? Can you name a couple of names of trust that put over what you thought was a positive, interesting statement about what they're doing, what they're hoping to do? I think 
One thing I'd draw out and might leading quite nicely to what we're about to talk about is Marcus Fairmudge, manager of TR Property, was on one of the panel sessions that I was hosting. He seems to be pretty confident in particular areas of the real estate market that have strong fundamental supporting drivers. He's starting to focus on investing in attractive growth opportunities now after having spent about 18 months primarily working on, on balance sheet concerns and uh, making sure that he was well positioned from a, a debt perspective. And I think most of that's um, been sorted now in terms of his portfolio and confident for the future of the real estate market from here and really reiterated that valuations are attractive, particularly due to the fact that they are supported by ongoing M&A activity in the sector. So that if investment trust investors don't recognise the attractive valuations an external company or, or private equity will recognise it and implement M&A activity within the sector. Yes, he, he was interesting about that when he came on the podcast not so long ago and talked about that. And of course, we have seen some M&A and we're going to talk about the property sector now. I thought the one thing that was interesting, if I, if I read a report out of his interim results, he said, and I thought this is quite interesting, or at least for what I read, he said, I haven't actually read the original myself yet. He said that there could be circumstances in which it would be okay for property companies to issue equity, to do an equity finance deal, even while the shares are trading at a discount. And that would seem to go against the general principle that we don't issue equity at a discount, purely because the opportunities are so attractive at the moment. What did you make of that? Did you think that's an idea that would go down well with investors? I I don't think it's an idea that would go down well with traditional investment trust investors. It's something that a few property fund managers have talked about. I think there seems to be a real distinction between property investment in the US and the UK and also within the UK for investment trust type property structures and then equity property companies. For non-investment trust, a lot of the focus within property is on earnings, dividend cover, things like that rather than NAVs and discounts to NAV, which makes it easier to kind of raise money without it clearly being at a discount to NAV. Clearly, any fundraise at a discount will be dilutive to shareholders. I think Marcus had a couple of points around that. Number one is how much you can actually trust what the underlying NAVs are. They are outdated. They may not actually be accurate in terms of what you could sell the portfolio for. So actually, how much of a discount is it really at versus the discount to the last stated NAV? And then the other point, which I do think is fair, is that when investor confidence in the real estate sector is really low, therefore discounts on the trusts are wide, but underlying valuations are also cheap because there are less buyers in the market. So if you are able to raise new money, you can get what you've used as very attractive deals in the property market. This is when you want to be kind of raising money and investing, not when things are doing great, everyone wants to pile into property and asset values are already elevated. So I think it's an interesting point, but whether any funds will actually do it is a different question. So it rather goes against conventional wisdom anyway, at least, but it's a sort of contrarian idea that there will be an opportunity, given that NAVs probably aren't right, where you could actually get a really good bargain if only you could raise the money quickly or you could do it, even if it's a discount to where you are yourself. That's an interesting idea, I must say, and I think that deserves some discussion, whether it, as you say, will prove popular, I'm not (laughs) sure. Let's talk about the property sector. I mean, only this week we heard that there's been a lot of talk about consolidation, the need for it, or the need for companies to take some more decisive action because of the derating. Uh, And we heard this week that the proposed merger, or at least the one that forced an announcement out of the companies 
because they hadn't made an announcement about it, but they were forced to do so because of market speculation, was between Picton Property Income and UK Commercial Property, ticker UKCM. Uh, we heard now that it's been called off. So what do you make of that? So that was an announcement that came out recently, not too long actually after the original announcement of the discussions of the merger. So essentially what the announcement said was that UKCM's largest shareholder, uh, which is Phoenix Life, was not supportive of the merger on the terms proposed. It's what the announcement said. That shareholder owns 43% of UKCM's shares. So clearly, they were always going to be a key deciding factor in the success of the merger talks. It was a pretty short announcement. They didn't give any details as to why Phoenix Life didn't support the proposals. We suspect that one of the reasons might have been because there wasn't a clear catalyst for a share price uplift because they're both trading at similar discounts and the merger was to be on a nav for nav basis. So there was no initial or obvious sort of share price uplift for UKCM if it moved to Picton's shares. So it'll be interesting if Picton returns with any new proposals over the next few weeks. They have to make an announcement by the 6th of December to either make an offer or announce that it doesn't intend to make an offer under the takeover code. So we'll see if anything comes out of that. But I guess it's interesting as an example of how a significant shareholder can make a real difference in things like this. It does have the power to block it. I mean, we don't know the details, do we? But I mean, it's slightly odd you would think in a way that the larger shell would have been involved or have been consulted before you actually got to the stage where an announcement had to be made. Maybe it was all being done on a provisional basis, you know, behind closed doors. What do you think might have happened there? Do you have any thoughts on that? How would you have got yourself into this situation, I suppose? Was it just the leak that caused the problem or was it something else? That's an interesting point. Again, it's pretty unclear from the announcements, but that combination does make it seem like Picton approached UKCM as a takeover bid rather than it being a kind of mutual merger discussion, because otherwise, as you say, Phoenix Life would have been consulted before now. But equally, it could have been that they were in discussions, Phoenix Life was maybe pushing for a specific thing, a uh, condition on the merger, and then Picton have said no, and so now they don't support it anymore, whereas maybe they did support a general idea of a merger. It is very unclear due to the, the lack of details that, that we've seen publicly. If we're just talking about scale, of course, there's more pressure on Picton than there is on UK commercial property because UK commercial property is much larger than Picton, but it obviously would have created a, a larger overall vehicle. So doesn't that rather leave Picton looking a little bit vulnerable? You, you never want to be caught out trying to do a murder and then find out that it hasn't gone through because people might then say, well, you know, what's your problem? Why, why are you doing this? Though, of course, Picton is, I think, self-managed, isn't it? And that was another interesting feature of this one, that the proposal was that they would keep Picton because it was a self-managed trust, among other things. How do you interpret that? How relevant was that as a factor? Yeah, I think that was a really interesting part of it. Normally, you would expect the larger vehicle in a merger to be the ongoing vehicle. And as you say, UKCM is significantly larger with a, a market cap of around a, a billion at the moment, I think, whereas Picton is only about 350 million market cap. But one of the things that Picton did highlight in the initial announcement was that the ongoing vehicle, if the merger did complete, would be self-managed as Picton is. It's a topic that's been discussed a lot recently around the cost disclosure rules, as we mentioned earlier, the fact that self-managed property companies or kind of listed as, as companies rather than funds don't have this kind of ongoing charges figure and separate management fee, whereas clearly they do still pay their manager's salary. So I think that was a 
they hoped, I guess, that that would be a key factor to make shareholders support the merger, that they could have a larger vehicle without the cost disclosure requirements. Yeah. And of course, in the meantime, both these trusts are sitting on, as you said, 30% discounts or so. So maybe, unless that rectifies itself naturally for the kind of reasons that Marcus Fermat is talking about, they've still got an issue to deal with there. It's a bit wider than they have historically traded at. And there are other trusts in the sector which are, I think, interested in becoming what we call consolidators. There may be more mergers, but I think this just underlines they're very difficult to pull off, aren't they, really? We have seen uh, two or three deals, actually, that have seen uh, investment trusts either sold directly or getting together. But uh, do you think there will be more now, given where we are? I think, yes, as you say, if discounts don't tighten significantly in the near term, I would not be surprised at all to see more mergers, even without actually kind of tightening discounts. I think there still will be pressure on the smaller funds, the potentially subscale funds. There's more and more demand for ever larger, more liquid vehicles. I think particularly in, in property, a larger portfolio makes sense in terms of the ability to diversify across a larger number of assets and, and tenants. And I think it's just been something that's really been brought to the forefront of investors' minds over the last few years. So yes, definitely wouldn't be surprised to see more consolidation, whether that's property investment trusts merging with each other or private equity taking them out if discounts do stay wide. So just looking down the list I keep, and I can certainly count sort of 10 trusts, which are certainly under 300 million market cap. Obviously, they have big discounts. So their assets, you know, you could argue are worth more than that. But they'd be potentially quite vulnerable. I wanted to ask you about the kind of way that different trusts have been performing since the low point a few weeks ago, as you said. I mean, I'm just again looking at the best monthly performers in share price terms. This is not in total return in share price terms. And if you see at the top, we've got uh, Tritax Big Box, we've got LXI REIT, we've got Supermarket Income REIT. And then we've got TR Property, all of which are up significantly in the region of 15 20%. And yet down the bottom, we've got others, such as some of the more specialist ones, regional REITs, value and index property income, and so on, which are only marginally up. So is there any kind of rhyme or, or reason to uh, why some trusts have done better than others? Or is it just a case that some of the best performers are ones which also saw the most significant derating before? I think it does seem to be that latter point that the ones that are seeing the biggest rebound were the ones that were derated, some of the sharpest in the initial sell-off. I think quite a big part of that is the liquidity of them. I think it's some of the kind of larger, more liquid funds that saw a big sell-off because if people were trying to exit property in general, that is where they could get out. And then you see that on the flip side as well, when investors want to re-enter the market again on a broad level, they can access these larger, more liquid funds to gain access there. Something I've heard as well anecdotally is that there might be kind of a technical element of it as well, that some of these larger, more liquid funds were also shorted by hedge funds as a way to short the property sector, um, and they are now covering their shorts. So there might be a kind of technical element of it there as well. Yes, and liquidity would be important if they were doing that, if hedge funds were doing that. Again, looking at the market caps, the four biggest are all in the top six of performers over the last month. So that includes supermarket income, LXI REIT and Tritax Big Box. They're all very large trusts over a billion market cap, even though they trade at a discount. But top of the list, though, is Triple Point Social Housing. That's an interesting one. That's up, I think, 25% on a month. What do you think is going on there? Is that just because they're now being seen in a, how should I put it, they're being seen for what they are rather than for the sector they happen to be in? Well, we've had a lot of problems. We had the civic issues with Civitas Social Housing, which got taken out. And we've still got the ongoing sort of nightmare that is home REIT. Do you think that's a factor or are there some actually trust-specific factors at work there? I think 
on that. It's a bit of both. I think it did reach a real significant discount, which was at least partially due to the overhang investor concerns around the sector and tainted by Civitas and to an extent home REIT as well. I don't think the concerns around social housing are completely gone, but this one did have less specific governance concerns that those other two did. So yeah, maybe there's a kind of an element of it being the only one now, nothing else to compare it to in the listed space in terms of ones that are are trading anyway. So it might have seen a, a rebound there. It's interesting, actually, they did make an announcement on the 13th of November. So earlier this year, first half this year, they had been doing share buybacks. They had been really trying to signal to the market that the board was really aware of this wide discount, aware of of shareholder concerns there, undertaking a shareholder consultation. But yeah, they made an announcement on the 13th of November saying that they wouldn't be making any share buybacks in the near term as they wouldn't be able to do so before making any more property disposals, which they didn't expect to make before the end of the year because of unsupportive market conditions. Right. That's interesting as well. If the market actually likes that kind of message now, that's a change from where we were. I mean, fair to say they're still on the second largest discount in the sector, I think about 50%. (laughs) So everything is relative. And just talking about a big discount, that's what I asked you a question about regional REIT, which is a relatively small trust and distinctive one because it specializes in, in regional offices and offices are the one place you don't want to be in the current market or has been. And yet they've actually performed a little bit better recently, but they're on a 60% discount. I mean, a 60% discount is a ridiculous figure, really, isn't it? It would surely be telling you something. And as a result, their yield, they have cut their dividend a bit, haven't they? I think, but uh, it's still pretty handsome. So what, what can you tell us about regional REIT? Is it just completely friendless given where it is and what it does? Yes. So the fund did cut its dividend, as you say, back in October to ensure that it was fully covered again. I think it suffered quite a bit from its rising debt costs and also some vacancies impacting earnings and therefore dividend cover. So it cut its dividend it had been pretty weak in share price terms for a while. As you say, regional offices, really not a sector in favour at the moment following the return to office debate, more kind of hybrid working. So when they announced a dividend cut in September, we saw an, an even big decline in the share price. I think it is now offering prospective dividend yield of around 15, 16%, which they expect to be fully covered. So that does seem crazy. So I think the reason that it's still on that big discount despite it offering such significant yield is partly because of the sector that it's invested in. No one needs regional office exposure and it perhaps raises more questions than it needs to if you're kind of talking about your portfolio with clients. And I think there are still some significant issues around that trust's debt. It's got 52% LTV, which is by far the highest across the wider property investment trust sector. And Yes, it's still some kind of floating rate debt exposure. So the board has now said that it's focused on a controlled disposal program to reduce the net LTV ratio back towards its long-term target of around 40%, has made some sales and, and repaid some debt. But I think until that, the balance sheet's really sorted, it's going to be a difficult sell to investors. So the final question then is just looking across the sector as a well whole and focusing on those yields. You're still getting very handsome yields out of the sector, typically 6 7 8% in many cases. And that's obviously now, if, we're in a, if we are in an environment where the yields are actually falling, that is going to become to look more attractive if those dividends can be sustained, obviously, and, and remain uh, covered to a significant degree. Remind us what the traditional kind of spread between a gilt yield and a property company yield is. And at these levels, are we beginning to see something that is a higher spread than normal? 
So the average spread for UK commercial property investment trusts over uh, 10-year UK gilts is just over 300 basis points. And we are actually now back around that level. So investment trusts offering a 300 basis points yield pickup over 10-year UK gilts. So kind of being in line with that average clearly means there's no kind of massive trigger for a re-rating or de-rating on the other side from current levels. But yeah, so if we do see gilt yields continue to fall, then we could see property investment trust share prices react positively to that as that they don't need to offer such a high yield on the share price in order to offer that pickup. So I think any further guilt yield thoughts from here will be helpful. And then just in terms of your clients and the people you speak to all the time, do you actually detect that there is some real demand coming back for commercial property trusts? We mentioned at the top that the sentiments improve, but that doesn't always translate into significant volume. What are you seeing in terms of that uh, kind of deal flow? I don't think we're seeing any significant re-entry into market in, in terms of kind of big volume. I think people are still cautious across the board, not just in property. Again, at the underlying kind of client level in terms of wealth managers, I don't think they're yet seeing the inflows that they need in order to be able to reallocate back in into the sector overall. But I think what we are starting to see is people keeping an eye on it more now I think waiting for maybe one more piece of positive news a few more weeks or months of sustained share price improvement so that they are more confident that the turning point has come ready to kind of deploy any any spare funds they have once confidence does return fully. So that was Emma Bird, Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterford Securities and uh, in-house expert on the property sector as well. On then to the merger between two JP Morgan investment trusts, which was announced last week, and my conversation with the chairman of the two trusts involved, John Evans, who's chairman of JP Morgan Midcap, ticket JMF, and Andrew Impey, chairman of JP Morgan UK's Smaller Companies, ticket JMI. Both men have considerable experience in the investment trust sector, John Evans having been one of the founders of Aberforth, the specialist UK's smaller companies fund management business, which manages, among other things, the Aberforth Smaller Companies Investment Trust, the largest in the UK's smaller companies sector. And Andrew Impey, having more than 30 years of experience in fund management, also including spells as co-chief investment officer of Singer and Friedlander and joint managing director of the boutique investment management firm Olim. That experience, I think you'll agree, comes through clearly in the discussions that follows, in which we talk not only about the proposed merger, the reasons for it, and the outlook from here, but also the outlook for the investment trust and the UK equity market generally. My first question to John Evans, who's the chairman of JP Morgan Midcap, was how did this deal come about? When did you start thinking about it? And what was the process that led to the announcement that we had last week? I think the key thing of the encouraged us to start to look a bit more broadly at the background to Midcap was the fact that we had an investment trust with a market capitalisation just under £200 million, trading on about a 15% discount and with a cost ratio that was somewhere in the mid-point-nines. And our long-term performance has been very good, but as you're probably aware, UK Midcap and Small Cap are certainly not flavour of the month at the moment, so we had an asset category where one could see very few buyers for the trust. We'd spent over the past two years about £20 million buying back our shares with very little impact on our discount. So we began to look a bit more strategically and and see if there was anything else that we could do that might perhaps create a better investment proposition for potential buyers of mid and small cap in the UK. 
JP Morgan has another investment trust, JP Morgan Smaller Companies Trust, uh, which you'll hear about in a second, which covers very much the same ground that we do. There are differences, but our uh, commonalities is probably about 50% overlap in our portfolios. And it also happens to be managed by the same investment managers who look after JP Morgan Midcap. So when we thought about it in a bit more detail, you could come up with a proposition where the same investment managers, i.e. exactly the same individuals with the same investment philosophy and the same process, were managing two investment trusts in a very similar asset class. And if you put the two together, then a lot of the issues which I mentioned when we started this conversation about scale, cost ratios, liquidity, etc., would be addressed very effectively. So it occurred to us that there was a great deal of logic in exploring the possibility of putting the two trusts together. And we obviously eventually spoke to Andrew about that, and it appeared that there was actually a very good meeting of minds between not just the chairs, but the boards in terms of the way we'd like to see our trust going forward. So we began discussions probably around about the first half of this year, and the announcement you saw on the 14th of November was the fruits of those discussions. Okay, so uh, let me ask you then, Andrew, from your side, how this uh, came about. Well, the JP Morgan UK Smaller Companies Board's been actively investigating ways of trying to grow the fund for the same reasons that John was talking about. We felt we were on the border of being subscale, viable, but you know we could see that our costs were creeping up. Clearly, in this world of increased governance, overheads are going up. So our ongoing charges ratio was creeping up above 1%, which we didn't think was ideal. Um, So we've been looking at ways of growing a company. In the past, we tried to have a subscription share issue. That was back in 2015. It didn't work. We looked at a loan stock issue. Again, that never saw the light of day. But we've been monitoring the JP Morgan Midcap Trust for all the reasons that John said. There is considerable overlap. We've got the same managers. So for a number of years, we've been looking at the commonality of the two portfolios and just wondering whether there might be an opportunity to put the two together. So when I was approached about the possibility, Midcap Trust was very much pushing on an open door. Um, It's something that had been in in our minds and we were really quite keen to do from the outset. So we've been talking for a few months and it's been a very fruitful process. And I think we've got a really good deal for both sets of shareholders here, it's a deal being done from a position of strength. Midcap's got a good long-term performance. Our performance is very good. It's just that we're an out-of-favour sector at the moment. So by merging the two trusts to create a, a new investment trust that'll be in excess of £400 million assets at current day prices, we'll be able to reduce those costs, increase the liquidity of the shares in issue, It'll help us maintain our appeal to to wealth managers who, as you're well aware, are are consolidating and sort of getting too big for the sector almost in some cases. So I think this is a a, a very, very attractive deal. And I think shareholders have shown they're really welcoming it. And we've had some very good comments elsewhere. So before we just look at the details, can I just ask you this question then? What was the thinking that led to the smaller cap trust becoming the continuing vehicle rather than the mid cap trust? Is that because you wanted to be in the, in the small cap sector, which is quite large, and you want to have a vehicle there, or is it some other reason, or is it uh, not relevant particularly who continues? <laughs> it's not really that relevant, and actually the rationale was that when we first started speaking, JP Morgan Smallers was the larger trust. 
Simple as that. Okay. Nice. Straightforward <laughs> answer. Well, as you may know, we had you and Lovett Turner from Numis on the program last week, and he said the brokers have always been saying, why don't you put uh, Midcap and Mercantile together? Because it covers a lot of the same ground, but obviously much, much bigger. That wasn't ever on an option as far as you were concerned. I suspect it potentially was an option, and it was certainly something we discussed at great length with our advisors. But Mercantile is already a very large trust within the context of the sector. And if you look at some of the nuances of this merger, we've been able to introduce a number of factors which we think will directly address our discount, and in particular, the enhanced dividend distribution, which we may come back to later on. I believe that Mercantile is is a very solid ship, which is quite happy to sail on on its own at the moment, whereas I think we certainly needed to address a number of issues, as did smaller companies' trusts. So you're putting two trusts together, which have a great deal of commonality and a great deal of continuity. And while you could put forward a great deal of logic to us looking at Mercantile, quite a lot of that continuity and the other issues were not present in a potential merger between us and Mercantile. So it it led us quite quickly to the view that smaller companies was by far the best route for us to pursue. Andrew, did you have a thought on that? Did you have a feeling that you didn't want to lose the small cap identity in this process? I think, firstly, I should stress, we we were very open-minded about the whole process. Um, You can't get these deals done unless you are open-minded and prepared to have a dialogue. I think we feel that there's a huge opportunity in the UK market outside of the FTSE 100. So as we all know, the UK has been very much out of favour with with international investors and and domestic managers as well, other than perhaps investing in some of the sort of high-yielding stocks in the FTSE or the more international stocks. So we're left with a really interesting subset of companies which are unloved by investors And so it was really just a question of how do we provide both sets of shareholders with exposure to this, quite frankly, very exciting area of the market. And, you know, the newest index plus aim covers about half of the mid cap. So by merging the two, we keep the identity pretty much of the mid cap trust and our own trust. I think the commonality is about 60%. And so there's not huge turnover. But the, the, the key thing is it provides exposure to a very interesting area of the market. And we've got fund managers who've got incredible track records in this area and, and lots of staying power. Georgina Britton has actually been our fund manager for 25 years now. So I think she's the second longest serving female fund manager. But really, it's just the opportunity set that's there. And, you know, if we can provide exposure or continue to provide exposure to this area and do what we can to reduce the discount and improve liquidity, that's got to be good for shareholders. So in terms of what this vehicle will look like and it goes forward, is it going to look more like the mid-cap or is it going to look more like the small-cap trust? You want it to be in the small-cap sector, presumably, or do you not? What's your thinking on that? Because the mid-cap is in the all-companies sector, to the extent that that matters. What do you think it will look like when you put these two together and, and actually combine the portfolios? One of the um, factors that we had to think about when we were looking at, at this potential merger was that clearly we have a trust which can invest in the mid-cap But our investment guidelines allow us to own 15% off benchmark. So that would consist either possibly of one or two AIM companies, which are not in our benchmark, one or two smaller companies, which the fund managers might think are moving up into the mid-cap, or stocks which were in the mid-cap and have graduated into the FTSE 100 index. And actually, over the period I've been involved in the trust, the majority of the off benchmark part has been stocks which are in the FTSE 100 index. And 
if you look at the guidelines that are proposed for the new trust, I might say they're quite generous to the fund managers in the sense that they're allowed to own stocks which have left the numerous small companies index, including AIM, but are still in the FTSE 250. So actually, the biggest difference that our shareholders will see in terms of stocks that they own is the fact that we won't own anything that's in the FTSE 100. But we do have the ability and the latitude to own anything that's in the FTSE 250. So actually, as chairman and looking at the asset class and the exposure my shareholders have at the moment, I can quite happily look them in the eye and say what you're getting in the future gives you the potential to own exactly what you've got at the moment with the addition of some very exciting smaller companies. And crucially, I think, given some of the discussions that are taking place in Whitehall at the moment, an increased exposure to AIM if that's what the fund managers choose to do. So from our point of view, how the trust ends up in terms of its portfolio balance is something that our shareholders should be very familiar with. So we were very comfortable from that point of view. And your thoughts on that, Andrew? Well, I think John's pretty much covered it. I mean, from our point of view, we're not changing any of our investment policy or or objective. So that remains exactly the same. And that's probably not surprising, given we've got the same fund managers. So from that perspective, there is no change for our shareholders at all. We've always given our fund managers pretty broad reign and tried not to handcuff them with, with too many restrictions. They're very experienced. They know their way around the sector. And we want to give them the biggest opportunity set that they can have to produce good returns for our shareholders. So by embracing the mid-cap a bit more, which is, I think, will be the main change for us, we'll have a few more mid-cap companies, we succeed in, in doing that. So we just have exposure to the most exciting companies within our remit. Question for either of you, really, or both of you. I mean, the small cap sector is a fairly competitive one. There's quite a lot of companies in there with good companies with good records. The mid-cap sat in the all-company sector and uh, was differentiated there. Do you think there's a sufficient differentiation here to give investors something that's different from the other small cap trusts that are out there in the sector at the moment? Well, personally, I believe there is. I think the differentiation in the small cap sector is not so much in terms of what investment managers can choose to buy, It's the philosophy that they choose to use to apply to that sector. So, for example, you'll see there's a number of what might be called strategic investors in the sector who are looking to invest in companies and try and bring about change. And there's a great deal of value investors in that sector as well. So um, I think the approach that our fund managers are taking is very different from that. They have a very strong, a very long-term momentum approach to investing in uh, small and mid-cap. It's been very successful and it's very clearly understood by our shareholders. So then let's just look quickly at the mechanics of the deal. So there is a potential cash exit for about 15%, I think, at a small discount uh, for shareholders in the mid-cap trust. Why is that? Why 15%? Why not more? And why nothing for small-cap trust investors? Why not be controversial in a podcast and say, well, why have we got 15% at all? Why didn't we not have a cash exit? As I said earlier on, I think I can look at my shareholders and say, you're getting the chance to be exposed to the same asset classes you have at the moment, the same fund managers, same investment approach. But we do accept that we're making a change. And it's correct that some investors may see that as uh, quite significant. So it's appropriate that we do give some cash exit. And we felt that 15% was the right level. I think you, you have to take a step back here. And if you look at our shareholder base, which is very solid, and has been over the very long term. We don't have a cadre of shareholders who are looking to exit this trust at the moment. So as Andrew quite rightly said earlier in the interview, 
This is a board-led deal. It's not been foisted upon us or pushed upon us by our shareholders. So we're not responding to a demand for cash, but we did feel it was appropriate, given the advice that we received, that we did make some opportunity for shareholders to take cash out of the trust at the moment. Okay, we have been trading at a discount, which is probably wider than you'd like to see. So that would suggest that there may be um, either some shareholders who might be looking to exit or there might be not enough buyers, either way, either way around you put it. So that, I think, would be the argument why you might do something. Well, are you expecting that sort of take up, 15%? Uh, the advice that we've been given from our brokers, etc., is that if you do offer a cash exit, normally those are pretty well fully subscribed. And I think if you looked across the sector, you'd find it unusual to see one that wasn't fully subscribed. Okay. But you haven't had any pushback yet about saying it should be more. The feedback that we've had from shareholders, advisors, other brokers, etc., has all been extremely positive so far. And uh, we're very encouraged by that. And Andrew, for your shareholders, they're not getting this opportunity, but uh, any thinking on that? Yes. I mean, I think the key point is that this is a board-led deal from a position of strength. So you've got trusts with good long-term records, good rationale for existing, as it were and extremely loyal shareholders. So I suppose the difference in our shareholder list is that we have a few very long-standing institutions, mainly local authorities on our list, who've been extremely supportive. And at no point have I had or the board had any communication from shareholders talking about doing things like tenders or, or even actually being more aggressive with share buybacks, which have been difficult to be efficacious in current markets. So we are not aware of any demand from shareholders to shrink the asset base of the trust. In fact, the whole rationale is to grow it. So it would seem pretty counterintuitive to offer an exit to shareholders on that basis. And I think it's also fair to say that as the receiving company in this combination, it's quite normal or not unusual at the very least not to have an exit. Can I also add that we do, unlike the Midcap Trust, have a continuation vote every three years so our shareholders do have a, albeit somewhat nuclear, way of getting out of the trust, should they so wish. Right. But you don't have a conditional tender or anything like that every three years. You no. just have a continuation vote. We're a very long-term asset class. I mean, as you know, smaller companies can be out of favour, as can mid-cap, for very long periods of time. You know, we're seeing that at the moment, as is reflected in the discount. I think that's much more a reflection of wealth managers and others sitting on the fence at the moment, waiting for the right moment to buy. It'll be interesting to see what happens when they do decide it's the right moment to buy. There could be quite a scramble to get into the sector, here's hoping. Yeah, well, that's for sure. I would certainly agree with that myself. Let's just talk then about the enhanced income approach, which you mentioned earlier, John. That's interesting. That's obviously been an approach that's been employed by other JP Morgan managed trusts. And you obviously think that that's been successful in helping to perhaps stabilise the shareholder register. I don't know. How do you think about it? What's the logic behind it as far as you're concerned? And how will that go down with uh, your shareholders? I think the logic is probably best demonstrated by looking at JP Morgan Global Growth and Income, which currently is trading at a premium and issuing shares on a regular basis. And I think it's also reflected in the increased liquidity and ownership across the other JP Morgan trusts, which have adopted a similar approach to their dividend. From our point of view, we're currently both in mid and small companies looking at a sector which actually has a a reasonable underlying dividend yield to start with. So if you like the capital supplement that we have to add to get to the 4% yield and net asset value, 
isn't as great as it might be in some of the other sectors that the JP Morgan Trusts have applied this policy to. The flip side, I think, if you look at what we've been doing over the past two years, as I said earlier, we've spent the best part of £20 million buying back our shares. And that's probably equivalent in total to about 80p per share over that period. What we're looking to supplement our ordinary dividend by going forward is something like 10% of that on an annual basis. So it is by far from being a substantial drawdown on our capital reserves. And we think the opportunity for shareholders to get a regular, i.e. quarterly and very predictable income is something that will be very welcome for them. And it's something that we can do quite comfortably within our capital structure. And finally, and I think the really key point about this is we do not expect our fund managers to change their investment approach at all in relation to this. They will continue to manage the trust as they see fit. The income they earn will be an outcome of their process, not an objective. And the supplements that the board will have to provide in terms of the capital contribution to the dividend may vary from year to year, depending on what the fund managers choose to do to the assets. But it's absolutely crucial that they continue to manage the assets in the way that they have done in the past. And it's up to the board to control the capital contribution to the dividend. But there's something you could have done earlier, but you haven't done it until this point. Did you think about it before, before you got to this stage? It's something we've reviewed in the past. But as you can see, we felt perhaps having a more consistent buyback approach might be something that would generate value for shareholders. It clearly has done in the sense that we've enhanced the assets by buying back shares at fairly wide discounts. But we think this is an approach now that provides a much more certain return to shareholders than buying back shares on a, on a regular basis. We may still do that as well, but this is something which is very visible and hopefully will be very attractive to a broader range of shareholders. Um, what's your thinking about that, Andrew, in, in your context? Well, I think the most important thing, I mean, we've been monitoring and thinking about doing an enhanced dividend. You know, in the past, we very much focused on, on capital growth. The key thing we had to be convinced of was this was not going to cause the managers to have to change their investment policy. John has made that very clear already. You know, it's important that they don't. The income for us is very much an outcome. I also see it as a capital allocation policy, which is what John has been saying. You know, you can buy back shares, you can enhance the dividend. And I think it's a pretty positive way of allocating capital. For our shareholders, it's it's a bigger increase. We're on a slightly lower yield, though, as John said, you know, the the market itself has quite a yield now. I think Numis and AIM yields about 4.5% prospective. So we're not having to manufacture income, which is something we'd be very much against. I think it'll help, especially with our existing shareholders, with our trust, I think it'll help increase our appeal because we are less retail in our shareholder base. And I think this is something that has a proven track record to appealing to retail shareholders. So we think this could be a fairly effective way, or at least another arrow in our quiver for trying to control the discount. Okay, so you've been obviously very experienced in the investment trust world. There is something slightly strange about enhanced income in the sense that you'd think that it really shouldn't make that much difference whether, you know, how you distribute at the margin, anyway, at the margin at least. I guess if you talk to some theorists, they would say it shouldn't really make that much difference, but it seems to have made a big difference as far as some of the other JP Morgan trusts. Why do you think that is? Is it just that there's something about a, a regular dividend, as you say, that appeals to a certain class of investors? Is that all it is? Or uh, is there some other factor at work here? I think it is slightly a presentational thing, which I think is what you're hinting at. I think retail investors look at two or three factors. Firstly, performance. 
we have good performance, especially relative to the indices. The other is the ongoing charge. Our ongoing charge has been or is getting, in our opinion, too high, hence part of the rationale for the merger combination of the two companies. And the other, I think, is they look at yield. So I think, you know, if you are just trying to refine down your investable universe as a retail investor, private investor, it helps. Okay, so let me ask another question, which I think will be of interest to our listeners. Obviously, this deal has gone down well, I think. You can say that. Admittedly, it's been a nice bounce in the small cap sectors uh, generally in the last two, three weeks. But I'm sure we just been to know how you go about the process of deciding who's going to be the chairman and who's going to have to give up their board seat at one or other of the trusts. How does this process actually work in practice? I've had some experience here myself, I should say, but I'm interested to know what your take on how this conversation goes. I think it's helped by the fact you were stepping down anyway, John. Is that right? You were about to step down as, as chairman. Have I got that right? Well, but nothing's been announced about the names of the composition of the board, but I think we have indicated that three directors will move across from mid to small, and one of those directors will step down effectively once the transaction has been completed and everything's been put to bed. So effectively, two directors from mid-cap are moving over onto the current small-cap board. And as I said, the names of those haven't been released yet. But again, I think maybe it's not a unique transaction, but Andrew and I started this conversation by saying the board will be what the board is. I haven't had any of my colleagues saying, well, this isn't happening unless I'm going to be on that board. Everybody has said, I'm entirely happy to do whatever is necessary to make sure that this deal completes. And I think if that were to be repeated more broadly across the sector, you might find that more of these deals might take place. (laughs) <laughs> very well said yeah <laughs> we, we had a very sort of grown up a matter of fact conversation right at the outset and we agreed that we weren't going to be precious about the makeup of the board and that the deal was so obviously in shareholders best interests that you couldn't possibly have boards getting in the way i think we also had the advantage that the existing jmi board is only four people which is an attempt to keep costs down and that i will be in the ordinary course of business, stepping down at the AGM a year hence. So we won't have an overly large and expensive board. Finally, then, perhaps I can ask you about just what you think about the investment trust sector. As I say, you've got a lot of experience in the sector. Discounts have got very wide. We had seen this extraordinary derating over the last 20 months or so. A lot of discussion about cost disclosure and whether that's actually a headwind that the sector faces. What's your feeling about the health of the sector and our board's doing enough? Should there be many more like you uh, having grown up conversations about the future of their trust? I think the the issues in the sector are actually quite familiar if you look back over a, a number of years. The core issues in the sector at the moment are in asset classes where money was raised over the past, let's say, eight to 10 years, where perhaps discount rates were the primary driver to the valuation of the underlying assets. And those structures were always going to be challenged when rates normalised. And that's exactly what's happened. And as you get a substantial change in the discount rate, the value of those assets has to change. So that's new territory that those trusts have moved into. It's new new an environment for their investors. And you're, you're really seeing quite a lot of challenges to those structures because effectively the structure requires low interest rates to work. So unfortunately, that is then casting a shadow right across the rest of the uh, the investment trust sector. And if you look at mid-cap, for example, while the sector is our asset class is very much out of favour, the structure of the trust was never really challenged. So we 
we're effectively dealing with more familiar issues of costs, a lack of investor appetite for mid-cap shares, which we've been through in the past. And we think we've come up with a solution that, that might address that. I saw a slide just recently, actually, which I found to be really compelling. And it was looking at mid and small cap investment over the very long term. And it points out that actually you have some phenomenal returns over very short term periods from this asset class. And I wouldn't be in the slightest surprise to see very high returns, you know, at some point in the, in the future. But the point that the slide was making is it's, it is the return can happen so quickly, it's very difficult to time it. And the liquidity is not there to allow you to take advantage of it. So the argument very much was you need to be in the sector, but you just need to be patient. If you own it, continue to own it. What are your thoughts, Andrew, on the sector? And well, I guess we should talk about UK equity trusts in particular and the kind of headwinds that uh, they've been facing in recent years. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, people are talking about entrenched discounts. I don't subscribe to that view because I've been around long enough to have seen so-called entrenched discounts in the past. So these things can change and they can change extremely quickly. I think what is different this time around is that very crudely put, you'd sort of have income trust, you'd have capital trusts. And when you had a flip in the interest rate cycle, one sector would start outperforming, the other would start underperforming. That hasn't happened this time around because we've got nearly half the sector in alternatives which are sensitive to interest rates and uh, the discount rate, as John very clearly said. So I think that's what's different. We've also had, as you're well aware, issues with valuing unquoted shares. So there's a bit of a cloud hanging over some of the, the bigger growth-oriented trusts. And so I think it's pretty unusual those two things coinciding. And that's also at the same time as we've got some of the biggest backers, i.e. the wealth managers, the biggest backers of the sector, merging and, and being genuinely concerned about liquidity. So more rationale for our deal. UK equities and UK small cap in particular, well, we've had a, an extremely torrid time, as you know. You know, we've seen people allocating aggressively away from the UK, which arguably was a step change that was long overdue. I think the domestic market was overrepresented in a lot of portfolios. So that is happening. And I think, you know, that's probably a good thing, perversely, going forward, because we'll have a reset. But within that UK equity market, we've seen quite a lot of outflow, especially when you monitor the, the open-ended funds from the small cap arena, just as people have become more risk averse. And I think, like John, that could change extremely quickly because there just simply isn't enough liquidity in the market. Right. And we're recording this uh, as it happens before the Chancellor's autumn statement. Do you have a, a view about whether or not there are some structural changes or some reforms that could be made to make the UK market more attractive? Or is these these are just long-term factors that there's not much you can do about? What, what would be your personal view on that? I applaud any move to help the industry and to encourage people to invest for the long term and for their futures. Though I think there are bigger things at play here. So it will help, but I don't think it's going to make a huge amount of difference in the short term. I'd agree with that. I think part of the issue that is being addressed is that the number of companies listed in the UK is shrinking. There have been very few IPOs this year. There have been a, probably a few more on Wall Street. But actually, when the IPO cycle does start to unwind again and, and pick up, you'll find that those who are seeking to list businesses will go to the markets where they can get the highest valuation. Why wouldn't they? And at the moment, that's not the UK. 
and no amount of government interference will change that. I suspect you're right about that. Well, thank you both for uh, taking part in the podcast. That's been very instructive, and I'm sure that this proposed merger will uh, go down well. Uh, at least seems to have done so far, and that seems to be a very positive outcome for you both. So that's uh, perhaps a good sign of what corporate governance in the investment trust sector could mean, assuming it all goes through, of course. That's still to happen. So that was John Evans and Andrew Impey, chairman of, respectively, the J.P. Morgan Midcap and uh, J.P. Morgan Smaller Companies Trust. And that's it for this week. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.